There is really, honestly, no excuse. With Bibles so readily available and in our hands, to have such steep misunderstandings and misapprehension of God. You realize that? These people, this verse was addressed to pagan idolaters, not to churchgoers. Wasn't addressed to people who studied the Bible, right? Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour, and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. Our, uh, our study this morning is uh, from a passage in the Bible, in the book of Acts, chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, we're not going to be using the screen. We're, we're going to only stay in that passage, so uh, you can open up to Acts 17, and uh, we will uh, look at the story of Paul when he spent some time in Athens. We're going to look at it a little bit in detail, see what we can discover, what we can learn. We'll actually find that that story is a foreshadowing of events that are common to us and happening around us today. So Paul is spending some time in Athens. Athens is the intellectual and philosophical city. Had a great legacy. At this time, it's about 400 years after the, the heyday of, of the Greek Empire where Athens was the center. So it's no longer you know, the capital as such, but it still has a fair reputation of being this uh, great gathering place of philosophy and a lot of the famous philosophers, Socrates, Plato and uh, Aristotle and them, they all hail from there. Philosophers whose philosophy still shapes the world we live in today to a large degree. So this is where Paul is and he's uh, spending some time there in this uh, beautiful city. Lots of art, lots of culture, lots of knowledge and lots of pagan idolatry. That's what it was a center of as well. Uh, previously, just a little bit of background because we're going to start in the middle of the chapter. Paul has just escaped from Berea where there were Jews that come to cause some trouble. So they whisk him away. They say, you better go. We don't want the same trouble we had in Thessalonica. And so he's in Athens. He's on his own. So he's waiting for Timothy and Silas. And he's just passing the time in Athens. And uh, this is where our uh, account begins, where we're going to pick it up in chapter 17 and verse 16. <clears throat> verse 16 and 17. We're all there? Yep. We're not going to go anywhere else today, okay? So this is the passage we're going we're gonna to spend some time looking at. Uh, verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Athens was famous for being the city of many gods. It's estimated by some historians that they had over 30,000 gods and idols and shrines for all these gods. So here's uh, Paul doing what a tourist might do while he's passing the time. He's walking around and he sees all the evidences of paganism and idolatry in Athens, this center of all of that. And what happens is his spirit is stirred in him. You know, I can relate to that. I was, uh, I was in India a couple of years ago and, and we had the opportunity to share the message there. And uh, in some of the free time, we would walk around and it's, it just so happened that they had a festival. Now, uh, the festival they had was for some of their idols and pagan gods were like, let's, let's go have a look, you know, we're curious. And so sure enough, we go have a look and, and there's this big shrine and this big idol and the people come and they put these uh, uh, garlands, you know, flowers and then they offer food items and they will be before the idol and they were doing that. And I tell you what, watching that, I can relate to what Paul says here, you know, spirit stirred it in, like, this is outrageous. This is today in this day and age, this is what was happening. Sadly, there was a bit of a language barrier. They couldn't go up to the people and, and shake them and say, what are you doing and that? But just seeing that sight, it's really, really impacting. So what we're seeing here, what Paul is experiencing, is not just far removed. I don't want us to think of this story as, oh, this is an event that happened in the past. There are many, many parallels, many principles and issues that are still relevant and present today. Idolatry and false worship is definitely uh, one of them. 
And India is not the only place for that. It's even relevant among Christian circles. So Paul couldn't be quiet. So it tells us he begins to, to dispute. Where does he begin? In the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue where there are fellow believers, Jews. Not only Jews, also Greeks who had become followers of Judaism. Many times in these Greek cities, uh, the synagogues would also have uh, not just Jews by blood or by heritage, they would have many Greeks who would be interested in the Jewish religion who, who would pick up that this is the true God and we want to follow that. And we will see evidences for that as well. Uh, and it talks about them as being devout persons, not only in the synagogue, but where else? In the markets, right? Marketplaces. Daily, he'd go to the market daily and whoever would stop and, and, and have an opportunity to talk with Paul, Paul would share with them. You know, the buyers, the sellers, people on business, citizens of the idolatrous city, Paul was sharing with them the gospel message of truth, the words of Jesus Christ, the words of life. This is what was happening. A good way to pass the time as a good tourist, huh? That's what Paul was doing. That's, that was what was big on his mind, you know, sharing the gospel message with those who are walking in darkness. Now, we're not going to get into the aspect of uh, dispute, because dispute gives us the idea of an argument, a debate, back and forth, argument versus argument. And this would be very common in a city that is very intellectual and very philosophical. This is what Paul would have experienced in the marketplace. You ever been in an argument or a debate, a theological one? It can become very frustrating, isn't it? And the success rate of arguments and debates is not very high. We actually don't see Paul having a great success rate in, what, uh, in this account. But it's just interesting to know some of these aspects and what we can learn from. What was happening in the market obviously caught the attention of some people uh, because we read in the next couple of in the next verse, verse 18, notice what happens. Paul caused some kind of a stir. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now we know some of Paul's subject matter of preaching. But before we get to that, he caught the eye of some philosophers, some of these pagan thinkers, intellectuals and, scholar, and scholars. The Epicureans, or the Epicureans, as some people would say. What does that mean? Epicureans were basically atheists. They did not believe that God exists. They denied the existence of God and uh, denied life after death or denied anything other than the present existence at the time. And their motto essentially was, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Make the most of life because all you're getting is the here and the now. You familiar with that philosophy? It's not called Epicureans today, but it's very common today. Don't tell me about anything supernatural or beyond this life. This is it. So make the most of it while you can. These are some of the people that took interest in what Paul had to say. The others were the Stoics. What were the Stoics? The Stoics were a group of people who actually believed they were what we would call pantheists today. They believed that God permeated everything. It's like God is the universe and everything there is. And that this life is simply a collection of incidents that happen to you. And you just have to do your best at dealing with it. They were kind of a, a fatalists. And uh, their motto, if you were to put a motto to it, is basically just grin and bear whatever life throws at you. They were very, they encouraged apathy. Don't get too excited about anything. Just, you know, plot along. Be moderate and there isn't any person who is God, who is an individual. It's just whatever the universe throws at you. Are you familiar with that idea too? The new age is very well described by all of that. You know, I have even the people I know say, oh, the universe, there's some coincidence would happen. Oh, the universe has a sense of humor. And they talk about the universe as if it's some intelligence, right? You, you familiar with that? Yeah. This, this is what was happening all the way back there. And Paul was meeting with these uh, philosophers and these intellectuals and these so-called thinkers. 
And then we also learn from this verse what Paul's preaching or his subject matter of preaching was. What did he preach about? Christ and the resurrection. So they heard about this Jesus. Say, Jesus, he seems to be a new God. We don't have a, a statue for Jesus. Who's that? That was, that was what they called their attention. And resurrection, what does that mean? And so they were, they were curious. But then they, they referred to Paul by this uh, title. You know, they say, what will this babbler say? You know, if you look it up in, in the Greek, the meaning of babbler, it means a seed pecker. And it's, it's kind of a derogative title. What, what they were implying is, you know, it's just like a seed pecker going around and pick bits and pieces here and there. It's like Paul had picked up some, you know, uh, words of some philosophers here and there and was just trying to impress us. Cherry picking. Cherry picking is what we would, we would refer to it today. Yeah, thank you. True. And, uh, and so they're like, okay, well, well, what, what does he have to say? Now, their interest in uh, what Paul had to say was not a genuine desire to know the truth, was it? It was more a curious interest in something that they might not have heard before. And they're like, okay, well, let's, let's see how he can impress us or not. Is that a common reaction today when you share something with people that they might not have heard before? Oh, yeah. Oh, that sounds interesting. Tell me more. And uh, their interest more is in something that is new and novel. That's actually what their interest here was. And we'll find out as, as Luke tells us uh, just a little later. Uh, there is a new God we don't know about. Well, let's, let's see what we can find out. Let's see what we can hear. Let's see what we can incorporate maybe to enhance our philosophy or not. Or to pick on him and show that he's obviously wrong. That's what happens when you get overly intellectual and it just becomes an exercise in theory and intellect. Nothing much has changed today, right? The world is still full of the same type of sentiments and it's still full of idolaters as well. Anyway, we go on. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him unto Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know therefore what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spend their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So here's the reason for their interest. These guys were just busy occupying themselves and here comes Paul and he's like, okay, entertain us. What do you have to say, buddy? Come along, we'll hear you out. Interesting uh, idea right there expressed, idle curiosity. You know, some people think they've heard it all until they hear something new and then their ears prick up. Say, oh, that's interesting. I want to hear that. And their interest is not in the thing or not of themselves, if it's of itself. Their interest is to gauge whether it's something they need to take on board or not. Is this something they can enhance their intellect with or not? Something they can criticize or not. And that's what we see right here. Now, Areopagus was the name of the court of, of judges in Athens at the time. It was the final authority. It's also known as Mars Hill. It was a court where these intellectuals would sit and they would judge, whether it be uh, ideas and concepts or whether even it would be crimes. This is, this is the, the setting, this is the gathering where Paul was now invited to address. Now, you think about it, that's a great opportunity to share the gospel message with these pagan, heathen, intellectuals and giants of thought and philosophy of the day, right? What does Paul choose to share with them? Very interesting, as we shall see. Very important lesson for us as well. They saw something in Paul enough to say, well, let's see what he might say. And like I said, this uh, is a foreshadowing of a very similar occurrence that happens today, again and again, where there is an initial interest to hear something new that quickly dies away as soon as you begin to share. You ever experienced that? We'll see the reaction of these people as well. So we learn much from how Paul preached because the issue there obviously was Worship. This was a city given over to idolatry. 
and false worship and idols and false gods. So Paul is going to talk to them about the true God and true worship. That's the subject matter of his sermon, as we shall see. The reason why this is important is that this is a message that is repeated again on a global scale in the last days. Here we see a microcosm, a small one incident recorded for us by Luke of that occurrence that in the last days is blown up and actually encapsulates the whole world. And so as we go through the sermon, I don't want you to miss, that's why I'm emphasizing that, don't miss the parallels that are going to be drawn to things that are happening today. It's going to be quite surprising, actually. It's an amazing, amazing account. So he begins his sermon in verse 22. And this is what he says. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Thank you. We're in Acts chapter 17, by the way. Acts chapter 17, we're just spending some time looking at the story of Paul and his experience there in Mars Hill. Verse 22 is just what we just finished reading, 22 and 23. Paul begins his discussion very wisely, actually. Uh, his introduction, he begins where they are at. He makes an observation of the things he has seen in the city. And his observation is actually uh, a compliment. When he says uh, superstitious, the meaning of that word is religious. You know, today we use the word superstitious in a negative way. If someone's superstitious, they're a little bit of afraid of, of all kinds of unreasonable things or, you know what I mean? This is not what he was saying. He wasn't insulting them. That wouldn't be very clever. Paul knew who he was dealing with. He was actually beginning very wisely at the, you know, as a way to, to have some common ground. And he compliments them. He says, you know, I spent time in Athens and I saw all these, uh, all these uh, well, he doesn't say the gods, but I saw all these things. He mentions one of them. And I, I conclude and I observe that you guys are very religious. You have an interest in things that are godly or of God because of your interest in all these gods. That's what he's saying. Very wise to learn from that approach, brothers and sisters. Extremely wise. And then very cleverly, he, he, he chooses this idol that is to the unknown God as his entry point. He says, and I noticed you, one of these gods, you're so meticulous in, in wanting to cover all grounds that you even have a, an idol to the unknown God. And I'm here to tell you that unknown one that you're worshiping ignorantly, I want to tell you about him. Amen. That's, that's pretty smart, right? That's very, very clever. So he had their attention. He didn't get their back. He didn't say, you heathen, pagan, idolaters. These are all false gods. This is false worship. Don't you know that? Sometimes we do that, right? Yeah. So it's, 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 it's smart to look at what Paul did and, and, and kind of learn, learn from the, uh, the wisdom that, that God gave him, how he can uh, you know, share the message of truth there. So the other indication here is that these people had some kind of hunger and desire and interest in something greater. Even though they had these schools of thoughts, these schools of philosophy in the city, the fact that there were so many gods and even the unknown God, this reveals the hunger and the thirst that is in the heart of man for some greater thing in life. And that's what Paul was capitalizing on. And that's what indicates that the, the, the multitude of gods means that they haven't found the answer yet. They even have one for the unknown God. Now when we look at the unknown God, how else would you describe the unknown God? Would it be safe to say that that was a mystery God? They have an altar for the unknown God, the God that they don't know much about, correct? Another way to say that is, it's a mystery. A mystery God, right? The unknown God. Does that ring any bells today? You know, we have a very prevalent form of ignorant worship to a mystery God today. You realize that? Paul met that in a bit of a different context. You know, the, the, the deception and the error has been refined over the years. It's where many years removed from Paul, but it's the same problem. 
in a different form. And how Paul addresses that is full of lessons for us. Let's keep going. Verse 24. Now he begins to tell them about this unknown God he's going to reveal to them. So he's going to tell them about the true God, correct? Verse 22, uh, 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Who is he talking to them about? God the Father. That's who he's talking to them about. So let me tell you about the true God that you're ignorantly worshipping. I should say, just in case anybody misses it, he did not tell them about a trinity, right? He's telling them about the true God, God the Father. How do you know this is God the Father? He's the source, the creator and source of all things. Jesus, when he was here on earth, he actually prayed one time. He says, Father, I thank... Uh, he called his Father, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. The Father of Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth. This is what Paul says here. He tells these people that the God who created all things, He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is greater than what we can devise for Him. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. What does that mean? You ever wondered about that? Paul was an Israelite, right? What was in Jerusalem? A temple. Why is he telling them God, the true God, does not dwell in temple in a temple made with hands. What's he talking about? God is greater than in the temple. See, the idea in the pagan minds is this. You would build a temple or a shrine for the God that you worship. And to meet with this God, you would have to go to that temple or to that shrine because that's where that God is. He's associated with that location, with that place. And that, uh, that idea was still there in people's minds, you know, when the woman at the well asked Jesus, you know, is it at Samaria, Jerusalem? Where do we worship God? It was based on this idea. Where is the true location where we can go and meet with God? Jesus' answer was, neither here nor there, because God is a spirit. And his implication, or, or the idea he's trying to get across there is, God is not limited or bound into buildings Amen. or locations. And to worship Him, you don't have to go somewhere where you'll find more of Him than another location. What you need to do is worship Him in spirit and in truth. And because He is spirit, He can be with you wherever you are. Down here in Australia, up there in the Arctic, wherever you might be. And so this is the idea that Paul is conveying to them. He's speaking about God the Father. The other thing is, when he says it's ne He's neither worshipped with men's hands, not a, as though he needed anything. Verse 25, seeing he giveth all life and breath and all things. God is the source. But God is also not the product of man's devising. God is not the product or the projection of the mind of man. Many of these gods that were there were simply the product of human ideas. The God of the rivers, or the god of the forests, or the gods of the trees, or the gods of prosperity, or the gods of anger, all these different gods and ideas that men have, and that the idea of God is a projection that comes from man's mind. Paul is telling them the true God is not like that. He is the source. That's a very important point to keep in mind. Any false god is a product of the mind of man. Worked by Satan in many cases, no doubt about that. But you with me? Well, in all cases, yes, yeah, that's very true. <clears throat> and uh, what that means also is this God is not the product of ecclesiastical councils that is formulated in a creed and defined thus and so in a temple of words that confines him and he is only found within the bounds of that temple. You with me? So we have to make some applications here. This is not just a far removed story. This is what Paul is telling them. God is not bound to all these things. He's the source, not the product. Are you looking to take your Bible study to the next level? Do you want to learn how to apply the Word of God in your daily life and share it more effectively with others? My Bible Academy is your online Bible school offering a free 
comprehensive and dynamic program designed to deepen your understanding and engagement with the Bible. Take the next step in your spiritual growth and enroll to start a course at My Bible Academy today. The courses are designed to equip you with the tools and knowledge you need to share your faith with others. Visit nadamansour.com to enroll and start your learning journey today. That's nadamansour.com. See you there. God gives, He doesn't need. And He is the one source of all life. The Father is the source of life in the universe. And He goes on to explain that. Now, uh, very likely Paul uh, must have pointed at one of the temples that would have been very you know, common in the city when he was making that statement. You know, that God is not bound and he's, he's not to be in temples made with hands by people and he's not limited to that because Athens was full of them. It was the city of many gods. Then he goes on to say, notice how else he describes God the Father. Verse 26, and hath made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. What an interesting description, right? We are all of one blood. We are all of one life. These uh, common racial divides between people and races and nations is a man-made thing inspired by the enemy. We are all of one life. That's what God did. He gave to humanity one life in Adam and we are all partakers of that life. You realize that? God does not give us new life when we are born to our parents. We receive and we inherit their life, correct? And they inherited that, and you can go all the way back to Adam. God gave humanity one life, and Adam messed up. That's why, that's why this life was lost. Christ comes as the second and last Adam. This is the new life. This is the new source of life for us. And when we are born again, we partake of that life of the second Adam. That's why we have these two Adams. So this is what Paul is telling them. God is the source of that. And... Uh, he also tells them that God uh, determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. God intervenes in the course of history of mankind, time and again, for a purpose. And what's the purpose? That they might seek the Lord in verse 27, right? You know, God has given to all life, He has determined all these things, and God intervenes from time to time in the course of history so that He can draw men to Himself. We see that very clearly in one popular story. It's the story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar the king. You remember that? There was a divine intervention there to acquaint the king with the true God of heaven. And God there revealed that He has seen the course of history and the nations and their bounds and all these things. That's just one illustration. That's Paul uh, briefly summarizing that and what he's telling them. The rise and fall of nations, the events of people's lives, where they live, their circumstances. God is on a mission to bring about a situation for each person to seek and find the Lord. And he says, he's not far from every one of us. The idea is contrary to the pagan concept that God is far removed. God is aloof. And you need to go and try and seek and see if you can figure out where he is and find him or find some kind of an oracle or something to, to reach him. Paul is here saying God is the source and God is the one who intervenes so that people can find him. He seeks them. That's the idea he's conveying to these people. God is interested in man. God is not mysterious. God is not unknown. God can be found. God can be known. That's the point he's making, right? Today we have a concept and an idea about God that does the very thing that idolatry does. An idea that shrouds God in a mystery that says God essentially is unknowable and cannot be found out. 
that idea goes by the name of the Trinity. It's a mystery. Those who teach and preach the idea that God is a Trinity, in essence, are shrouding God in an impenetrable shell. And what God says about himself, we are told, that's not what it means. It's something we don't know or understand. It's something that is locked up beyond the very reason that God was pleased to put in our heads. Is that right? Says so you can't figure out this Trinity, it's, you can't reason it, it is beyond our comprehension. The comprehension that God himself put in us so that we can understand what he is like. This philosophy teaches that there is a block, an impenetrable block, and in essence it puts God far from us. You realize that? Through a philosophical means. So you try and say, but God says he's like this. Oh, no, 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 it doesn't mean that. Well, what does it mean? It's a mystery. God in the dark, an unknown, an unknowable God. He's not really a father. There isn't really a son. And all these things that we've covered a little bit of. You, you see the parallels? You cannot miss the parallels. This is how Paul was preaching the true God to these idolaters who were worshippers of an unknown or a mystery God. Wow, great lessons. Or even things like, you know, when God says, uh, we were talking about that yesterday, when God says, you know, Father and Son, and we say, oh, God is only using human language, but that's not really what it means. Like even God doesn't speak our language properly. Right? The, the, the underlying theme, we have to put these dots together and realize what is being constructed here, brothers and sisters. Satan is an all-out attack to hide God and the truth about God from people. And he has shrouded God in this mysterious philosophical idea that even uses biblical titles and terms and hid God in, our, in front of our eyes. He has hidden God. That's really what's happened. If you don't believe that, if you think I'm, I'm pushing it a little bit too far and saying, look, nobody really knows what it's like, just listen to some of the explanations of the Trinity. And you tell me how many times people will contradict themselves and each other trying to explain the Trinity. One brother will say it's like this, one brother will say it's like that, another one will say it like the other thing. That is evidence of the confusion. That is evidence that they don't know what they're talking about. That's a mystery God. If we all preach what the Bible says and what it means, we should all be able to describe God in the way that he has revealed. There shouldn't be such confusion over it, right? But because we said these words don't mean that, we've closed that up and we left God in the dark. So everybody's stabbing in the dark, trying to explain God according to their own philosophy. And what we end up with is a God of man's devising. That's what the Trinity really is. A God of man's you, you've heard, you've seen the video clips and one preacher will say the opposite, exact opposite. And some go beyond the others, you know, in saying some outrageous things. I've heard some outrageous things in defense of the Trinity. Things attributed to God. That's what Paul was meeting all the way back there. Amazing. Nothing much has changed, right? So that's the evidence. Idolatry is rife today. It just happens to use biblical terms. So don't fall for the deception. God wants to be known. God wants to be found. He went all out to reveal himself. And look, let me tell you something. I know there is more to God than what we have in the Bible. We're not trying to say we know everything about God and we figured him out. No. But what God has revealed, don't you go calling a mystery. What God has revealed, don't say cannot be known because you're implying God cannot reveal himself. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with what God has revealed. Because sometimes people will say, that's a criticism, you know, say, oh, you guys think you figured God out. He's more than all of that. He is so, there is so much more to God. Yes, we know that. That's not what we're discussing. We're not discussing what God has not revealed. We don't know that. We're discussing what he has revealed. That's why it's called revelation. Not the book of revelation, but you know, the scripture. What God has chosen to communicate to us is for our understanding and our learning and our comprehension. He gave us a mind so we can comprehend what he says. He didn't give us a mind, so then he tells us one is three and three is one, and it goes against every reason he put in our head. Come on. Are you serious? That's what Paul was doing, he was preaching it. I'm, I'm kind of 
through, you know. Applying it today, just so we can see the importance of that of that story. You with me? It's quite an amazing, amazing account. It's quite an amazing story. Okay, let's let's move on. You get the point, right? Yes. And you know, someone says this guy is just going on a rant against the Trinity. Okay. That's fine. You can do that. <laughs> yeah, I can do that. But brothers and sisters, it's not just like this is this is the worship of people. There are people's destiny at stake when it comes to worship. And you look at the issue is serious on both sides. You look at how some people defend the Trinity and attack what we have to say. You realize this is a serious battle. This is not some kind of a minor thing. And those people say, oh, it's a distraction, leave it alone. But they you know, bring the big guns against it. And say, this is a heresy of Satan. If you believe that, you'll be lost. <laughs> it's a serious thing. It's a spiritual battle that we're involved in. Okay, let's go on. He goes on with the description of God the Father. Verse 28, right? For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. Amen. What's he saying? He's expanding on the same thought. God the Father is the source of all things. Things. He's a source of life. He's the sustainer of life. Not only that, but he even quotes some of their poets. There are some elements of truth in heathen, pagan idolatry. You realize that? One of the heathen, pagan poets, a philosopher, Paul says, even your own poets said that, right? We are the offspring of God, or we are the children of God, or the product of God. That's what he's saying. He's using the argument in his favor. Every error has some elements of truth. You know, some people try and share something with me. You know, all kinds of ideas, hear all kinds of ideas over the years. And they say, oh, but look, they have some really good points. Look, the Pope has some really great things to say, if you listen to some of the stuff he says, right? But the, the, the conclusion, the overall picture is false. But in order for the devil to palm off his error to you, he has to associate some elements of truth. That's what a deception is. He can't outright just tell you error after error after error. Nobody's going to fall for it. And so just be mindful and careful when you look at something. Most things will have some elements of truth. Paul picked a little gem of truth from their side to use it in his favor to illustrate the point he's making even further. That we are the offspring of God. That we are the product of God. That we are children of God. God made Adam and Eve. We are endowed by God with aspects and elements from Him. Designed to seek Him and have a connection with Him. Not with an idol, not with gold or silver, a rock or a tree or a box or whatever it is. That's his point, right? Just like we are real individuals, people, human beings. We are children of a God who is a Father, who made us. Not like some statue you have over there. That's his point, right? God is real. And that is God the Father. <coughs> And when he says here, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver. Someone might jump up and say, see, there it is, brother. He just told them about the Trinity. Godhead, that's, that's Trinity, right? Wrong. Wrong. Godhead does not mean Trinity. Godhead does not mean any numerical figure or number, whether it be one, two, three, seven, or whatever your favorite number is. Definitely not three, because that's the most popular one. Godhead simply means divinity. And it's applied here to who? God the Father that he's telling them about. One individual person. The Godhead is God the Father. He's the God and head of all. He is the source of all things. He is true divinity. That's what he's telling them about. We shouldn't think of the divine one. We shouldn't think of divinity. We shouldn't think of God and his godhood as something that can be made into gold or silver or represented by illustrations or pictures or images or things like, you know, a three-leaf clover or water, ice and vapor and an egg. How about that one? Harmony. Right? You can add all these things here. That's what he's saying. Harmony. Like, yeah, music. Music has three parts. I heard that one, yeah, recently. Thank you. Or whatever. That's what he's saying. God is a real living person. He is a father. He is the source of all. 
He's the living God, the Lord of heaven and earth. You can't use the lower things that he has made to try and represent him or illustrate him because these are the product of his hands. And when you try and do that, you will end up distorting God because he will become a product of your imagination. And that's exactly what's happened today. So you can add there gold or eggs or water or silver or stone or concepts or pictures or diagrams or ideas, all of that. That's what Paul's talking about. Amazing story that's very has very relevant points for us today, right? Who would have thought? That's why Luke records it. It's inspired to be part of the Bible. You've seen illustrations for uh, what God is supposed to be like, right? Amazing. He says here, Graven by art and man's device. God is not like that. I've seen some very colorful creative illustrations. A lot of them revolve around a triangle or some form of a triangle as the fitting explanation and description of what God is like. And when you look at that triangle, you're supposed to get an idea. You know, you see a triangle with God, you've got the Father, you've got the Son, the Spirit, and arrows. And, the, and some are different, some vary a little bit, some are more artistic than others. What Paul is saying here, that is not accurate, that is not right, that is not how you can understand or see God. You need to see what He has revealed about Himself. That's the point that He is making. These things really end up being an insult to God because they distort what He has revealed. Verse 30, this is an important verse. I like this verse. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. When you engage in that type of thing about God, you are in ignorance. Right? But God winks at that. What's that mean? God overlooks that. God bears long with that. But that verse doesn't stop there, does it? But now he commandeth what? All men everywhere to repent. That's the point. You know, while God overlooks the times of our ignorance, he shares information with us so that we can come to a place where we can repent. Yes. Can we choose to stay ignorant? Can we choose to stay ignorant? What do you think? Yes. We can choose. We can choose, yes. But then we don't remain ignorant innocently. We be, remain now willfully ignorant, correct? That's like someone put it as being dumb on purpose. You know? It's like you're ignorant and you want to stay ignorant, even though you've been told. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just expressing it in words that are common to us today, just to show how stark of a tragedy it is, you know, to be in a place like that. Peter talks about a group of people in the last days who are willfully ignorant that God is the creator and the sustainer. You realize that? That's what it means. So yes, we can remain if we, if we choose. That would be a very poor choice to do so. But the idea is simply this. If we innocently, truly don't know any better, God overlooks them. And God sends truth our way so that we can come out of that ignorance, come out of that darkness, repent of that. Repent means to turn away from that and come to the truth. Because many times people say, you know, well, we can't judge hearts, and that's true. You know, we can't condemn people. What if they don't know any better? That's very true. That's something we should keep in mind. But God does not want us to remain in ignorance. God does not want us to be ignorant worshippers of Him. If He did, then Paul would have said, you guys have the unknown God and you're worshipping Him ignorantly? Keep right on. I won't bother you. That's what people say sometimes, right? Well, don't, don't disturb. When we get to heaven, we'll find out. Well, what if God has already told us? Then what do we do with that revelation? It would be rejecting what God has revealed and rejecting, therefore, to repent, choosing to remain in ignorance, a very, very dangerous place to be. So repent from this ignorance to worship and disregard of the true God and misapprehension of Him. There is really, honestly, no excuse with Bibles, so readily available and in our hands to have such steep misunderstandings and misapprehension of God. You realize that? These people, this verse was addressed to pagan idolaters, not to churchgoers. 
wasn't addressed to people who studied the Bible, right? He was speaking to the philosophers, the intellectuals of the world, worldly pagans, humanists. That's who he was telling. He says, listen, God overlooks your ignorance, but he wants you to repent. Today, amazingly, the situation is applied where there are people with Bibles in their hands who are in the same place as these pagan idolaters were. With God's revelation in your hand, what God has revealed about himself, still worshiping God as a mystery, as unknown, with all these falsehoods and all these concepts. Isn't that incredible? Yes. And God overlooks the ignorance, but he does not want people to remain there. He wants everyone to repent. How does God call us to repent? By bringing the truth to us. That's why we have these meetings here this weekend, right? That's a call to repent. If you have been an ignorant worshiper of God, it's time to change. It's time to be an intelligent, understanding worshiper of God. That's what Jesus says. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind. That's understanding, right? You know who you worship. That's what Jesus told the woman at the well. And why is God intent on men repenting and waking up from ignorant worship? What's the reason? The reason he gives us in the next verse. Notice what the reason is. Verse 31. Because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. Why should you repent from ignorance? Because there is judgment day coming. Pretty serious, right? And you're going to have to meet his son. Okay, he talks about the son here, exactly. We're a lot closer to that judgment day than they were, right? A few points he mentions. There is a judgment day set. There is an appointed time set for judgment. Next, who is the judge according to Paul? Look carefully at the verse. Who's the judge? Okay, who is he been talking about all this time? God the Father, the source of all things, the sustainer, the one who made and maintains all things. And then he says, he appointed a day, that's the Father, in the which he will judge the world. So who's the judge? God the Father. How does he judge the world? By the man whom he ordained that he raised from the dead. Just like God the Father created all things through Jesus Christ, he's the source. God the Father is the judge. And he does that through his son. Doesn't Jesus say the Father has committed all judgment? Where? To my hands? He's the source, so he can't be left out. Many times we talk about Jesus being the judge, it's very true, but there, there is a connection, there is a source for that, as God the Father. That's how Paul preached it to these people. The evidence that there is a judgment, the evidence that God is judge and he will do so righteously, is that he raised Jesus from the dead. So not only did he preach a resurrection, he also preached that the one who raised Jesus was, not Jesus himself who was dead, Amen. but God the Father, restored his son to life. That's what he was saying. I don't want us to miss this point. What I said earlier, that this little incident is just a microcosm. It foreshadows a greater global application of this very same message. Wow. You see elements of the first angel's message in what Paul preached, you realize that? To worship the true creator God of heaven and earth because there is a judgment day coming. You know a message like that? That's a three angels message. And that's to go where? To all the world, to fear God and worship Him. That's exactly right. Interesting, right? Even to pagans. And even to people who have Bibles in their hands. Isn't that right? To all the world. Yes, you, you, you had your hand up. Can you explain in this context what Jesus meant when He said, um, I don't, I'm not going to judge, uh, you will be judged by your words. Okay, okay, can, uh, can I deal with that in the question time? Because that's a judge, because I'll, I'll address that, that's a good point, but it might just take us a little bit off. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the heart of the gospel, you realize that? Yes, it is. Doesn't Paul say, if, uh, if Christ has not risen, then your faith what? It's vain. It's vain. It's in vain. This is no point for what we're doing. If Christ has no risen, if there's no resurrection, what's the point? The, the, that's, that's the heartbeat of the gospel as far as 
making it a reality and applicable for us. It's that the Son of God came and lived and died as our Savior. And if it stops there, it's incomplete and was raised by the Father. That's how we have life. That's the point that's being made here. So, Paul didn't tell them about a trinity. Paul didn't tell them about a three-in-one God. That wasn't the God that they were missing. That wasn't the true God that they needed to catch up on. God told them about God, sorry, Paul told them about God the Father, and he told them about his son, Jesus Christ. But then Paul uh, got a reaction. The reaction he got is actually also a reaction that happens today. Yes. The effect of preaching the true message of who God is, what the gospel is about. Look at verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Two reactions. What's the first one? Distraction. Mockery, correct? Before that, distraction. Distraction? Yeah, they didn't focus on the one true God, they focused on the resurrection. Okay, yes, they, had, they, had, they picked on something. It's exactly right. They picked on something that Paul said, and they, he got to the resurrection, and they're like, oh, and then they started mocking. They started deriding. What is mockery? Mockery is when pride is touched. That's the reaction to protect it, correct? You will mock, you will disdain, you will deride. Isn't that right? That's what, they, that's what happened. Make no mistake about it. The Holy Spirit was present to touch the hearts of these people as they heard the message of truth. You realize that? I have no doubt about that. Here is Paul preaching to them the words of life, the words of Jesus, the gospel message. What an opportunity. And the Spirit was there to bring conviction to their hearts. And here is the reaction, here is the response. Self rises up. They found some point in his presentation to pick on and say, oh, the resurrection, whatever. Who are you trying to kid? There's no resurrection. And they use that to discredit everything that he said. Mockery is one common reaction to truth. Do you, hear, do you hear mockery today in reaction to the message of truth? That's a common one. Let me give you a common one I often hear. Because today, the resurrection is believed by most people. So it's not the same point that is mocked, but the same reaction about other aspects of truth, which reveals the same attitude and the same spirit present. Here's, here's what I hear often. If Jesus was begotten of the Father, where is his mother? Huh? You heard that? You familiar with that? And usually that objection or that is usually raised with a certain element of mockery in the tone. It's like as if, let me, let me prove to you what you're saying is total nonsense. He's not begotten. Where's the mother? Huh? Are you trying to say God has a wife? This is so outrageous and so insulting to God. It limits God. It limits God, but not only that, it reveals this pride and stubbornness to reject the truth based on any excuse. Let me tell you what, these same people that mock and deride that idea of God having a son without a mother are also people who believe in the virgin birth where a woman had a son without a husband, right? They have no problem believing that. They have no problem preaching that. When we come and try and tell them, God had a son. They say, oh, where's the mother? It can't be true, that's total nonsense. What hypocrisy? You should give up the virgin birth. If, you, if God cannot have an only begotten son, then why do you believe that a woman can have a child without a husband? You're out of your mind. They say, oh, but it's a miracle, God did it. Oh, really? Well, God can do other things maybe that you don't understand. How about that, right? That's mockery, brothers and sisters. Listen, I've heard this in person from theologians. I was in a meeting with nine pastors in the church and we're sharing this and this was the point, the one objection point they raised. And it was mockery. It's like, wait, we're idiots. How can we even think of God having a son without a wife? Obviously he has no son. And I've heard it often since then. That's the reaction that Paul met with. That's carnal, someone's saying there. Okay, yeah. This, this is brothers and sisters. 
This is the work of another spirit. And like you said, this makes God a product of man's devising. A God who can only operate within the confines that you predetermine in your mind. A God who can't. A God who can't have a son unless he does it in the way that you think it's possible only. That's a very limited God that you have. I want to introduce you to the true God. Amen. Sure. He can do wonderful, wondrous things that you and I don't understand because he's God. Amazing, amazing how people say God is a mystery, but hold on, God can't do that. What if it's that part of the mystery you don't understand? You know, this mystery part that you don't know about, I'm telling you about, God has a son. That's what Paul was telling these people. Different elements of truth he was sharing. I'm, I'm making, applying the principle to what's happening today. You with me? Yes. And that nothing much has changed as far as these things are concerned. Ridicule is the justification of rejecting truth. People will mock at something in order to give it less value in their mind and therefore justify rejecting it because it's nonsense. That's what happened. Uh, reaction number two. What else did they say? Others, it says, they said, we will hear thee again of this matter. What's that mean? Procrastination. Procrastination, delay, we're interested. It sounds like they're interested, right? Let me tell you th something. These people were at no interest. What they were saying is, oh, okay, well, well, let's adjourn. Let's hear about this at another time. Never. Also, they were tabling it. What's that? Tabling the yeah, tabling the discussion. Yeah, you know, that's happened today. You share something with someone and, and, and maybe they can't answer that. Oh, look, look, we'll, we'll talk later. Maybe email me or something. And you never hear back from them. Right? You never, that's it. That was the last time. Look, look, we'll talk later. Yeah, yeah, send me a text or something. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. That's it. That was it. Never hear from them again. Easy way out. No answer to the truth. You don't want to accept it. So just walk away. Okay, we'll talk later. No worries. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what, what time is the meeting? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll try and come. You never see them again. That's what these people were saying. Now, Paul understood that, okay? Paul understood that they, they were not... Because look, if, Paul, if they're telling Paul, we want to hear more about this. Oh, this sounds interesting, Paul. We want more details. If this was a genuine request for more information, do you think Paul would have stayed to tell them more? Yes. Most certainly. What happens? The next verse actually tells us. So Paul departed from among them. Why? He knew that the, the attitude, the body language, what they were expressing, and we'll hear you again, is like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe later, some other time. That we're done now. Thanks, next. That was their attitude. Maybe they just wanted to be a bit more polite than the mockers and the ones who were deriding Paul and making fun of the resurrection. So he leaves, verse 34, Howbeit certain men clave unto him, and believed among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Dam uh, Damaris, and others with them. Here's the other reaction to truth. There are some people who accepted the message. Praise God. Not many though. One of them, one of the Areopagites, one of these people, Dionysius, he accepted, and a woman. Interesting, Paul names the woman. So there were people interested, you know, of all classes in society there. Not only them, others with them. There was a group of people there. There was a, a, a church planted in Athens, right there. But not many people. The majority rejected. The majority did not accept the message. So this is the three reactions you get when you share the message of the true God. You will get mockery. You will get people who will, oh yeah, maybe later, not right now. And you will get some who will accept. That's an encouragement for us, brothers and sisters. Amen. There are people who will accept the message of truth. So in the midst of darkness, there was a light. That means the three angels' messages will be accepted by people. There will be people who will respond uh, positively to that and heed the message of the true God and become worshippers of the true God. This is what these people became. This man Dionysius and Damaris and others, they became worshippers of the true God. You realize that? The same God we worship. No longer an unknown God. No longer a mystery God. None of these things. They became worshippers of the true God. They accepted His Son. Now we have a Christian home church group in Athens. Kind of like what's happening these days, right? A few of us meet somewhere. You know, that's another point of mockery. I forgot to mention that. The question is, are they part of the conference? 
Hey, here's a question. Yeah. No. <laughs> Were they part of the conference? Is the question. <laughs> These people. No, this this was a home church group uh, established by Paul. But one other aspect, I hear this a lot, and you might hear this as well. Say, so if what you guys are saying is the truth, then how come there's not many people following it? <laughs> right? Yeah. Or people say, oh, the meeting, how many people came to your meeting? Maybe it was a small meeting. Yeah, there's not many people. You see the, the, the GYC or the, or the GC session or the big gatherings. Of, we have thousands of people. You have so small, few people. And usually that's said to denote that you must not be important or relevant or what you have to say is obviously not true because more people would come to you, right? Ask Noah about that. Yeah. Yeah. Ask Noah about that. It's not about numbers. That's exactly right. It's about what God says. If you use numbers to determine truth, most likely you will end up on the wrong side. Because that's what happened also in Jesus' days, right? They said, well, look, look, does anyone following this guy? Nobody's for, nobody believes he's a prophet. Except some of these people, the rabble, they don't understand the law. That's what the Pharisees said. They don't understand the scriptures. We have doctorate degrees. What do they know reading the Bible like that? Nothing's changed, brothers and sisters. Nothing has changed. So this is this other reaction. We have this home church group planted. They came to the true God and to his son. We don't hear too much more about this church in Athens. We're not really too familiar with what happened there. We don't have much details. But so far is what we have recorded is a very interesting incident in detail. This home church plant. This group of believers that sprung up in the heart of idolatry and darkness to become worshippers of the true God. Remember that when you feel like you're a little flock of believers somewhere, not accounted for and nobody knows you exist and what's going on and all of that, right? Remember that. God knows exactly where you are, who you are. God knows us by name. God knows his worshippers. His true followers. And God has a plan for us more than we can expect or think. I just want us to keep that in mind. So I want to encourage you with that story. Remember, nothing much has changed. The enemy is still the same. God is still the same. And God's truth is still the same. Amen. It's our choice to be on that side of truth, to accept that truth and make it a part of our being. Amen. That's the challenge. If you are blessed by this message, please share it with others. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.